I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This this is Mike. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's just funny when we have to re-record an intro because we messed up. So well, yeah, I messed take up. two. Take two. So today we are bringing an episode that I'm really, really excited about. I'm really excited about our guest today. Her name is Dr. Tara Rye Trent, and she's one of the most internationally acclaimed voices for women's empowerment and quality education. Dr. Trent is an inspiring and dynamic scholar, educator, humanitarian, motivational speaker, and author, and the founder of Tara Rye Trent International. She's also one of the most amazing storytellers I have ever heard speak. And you will get to experience that on today's episode. I mean, Mike and I just sat listening in rapt attention. It was so beautiful. She's appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show, Super Soul Sessions, CNN's African Voices and CNBC, and has spoken at the United Nations, TEDx, the Women in the World Summit, and Emerging Women Live, among other forums. She's also was called Oprah's most favorite guest Ever. She was on the show twice and she received her PhD in interdisciplinary evaluation from Western Michigan University and holds master's degrees in public health and plant pathology. And today we are talking about her book, The Awakened Woman Remembering and Reigniting Our Sacred Dreams, most importantly, chapter five, which is about owning your sexuality and your sexual power as a woman. And for a woman, who, like her, was married at the age of 14 and traded for the bride price of a cow, who has seen what she has seen grow up in a cattle herding family in poverty with no education, to say how critical it is for women to own their sexual power in their lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but that just made me shut up and listen. It does, yeah. It was, and Oprah has actually wrote the foreword to her book as well, so... You know, the Kate and Mike show is right up there with Oprah. I'm surprised we're not on the back cover of that or something. Just kidding. The not even close. I think we're close. I think our interviews are great. <laughs> I think so, too. We are close. So the I guess I undervalued ourselves. Yeah. We should Don't put, undervalue give, ourselves. Yeah, I'll give our... Sorry about that, Kate and Mike show. Tara yeah. or I was excited to come on the Tara show. Tara I was excited. Gosh, she is such an amazing woman. Yeah, I wish we would have had this on video, too, because yeah. the way she de- goes, it was such a great interview on going deep within yourself. I'll speak, or like in Tara I's case, inside herself to explain her stories. And we visually could see this happening and how she gets deep to explain the story. I know you saw her live out in Arizona. This is my first time like speaking to her on a much more lengthy or just like kind of learning from her in a visual visual setting. And it was I mean it's I'm blown away. You know where it's like I know we all str- we have struggles and there's things in our life that have happened to us in the past and things that will happen to us in the future and go through. There is nothing that's going to happen in my life that talks about being sold at a very young age as a woman in Zimbabwe and having four children by the time she was well, 18 she years really old. She was really sold, but there was a bride price of a cow. Oh, sorry, bride price. Of, she was traded for a cow. Sorry, let me correct that. But to go through what she went through and then listening to her story to overcome the challenges and she's 
she's making waves of changes and just like what is her reason for living now she talked about that now and kind of what the future looks like for her yeah and we told the story of how we met it was one of the more magical moments of the past year if not of the past several years for me if not of my lifetime so enjoy the interview enjoy terrorize get yourself a copy of the awakened woman go out and see her speak she's incredible we bring you dr terrorize trent Welcome, Dr. Tara Rye Trent. We are so thrilled to have you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. It's such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. So you came onto my radar not actually that long ago because I had seen the promotions for the International Women's Conference where you were speaking in Phoenix. And so and and I started following you and your work seemed so amazing. And then when you spoke at the conference, it was like my whole body was just like erupting <laughs> in such joy. And I mean, I think there were, you know, several spontaneous standing ovations and the power of your story, the power of your words. I was so blown away specifically by the fact that, you know, from like where you started being married at 14. Yeah. Yeah being married at 14 in a village in Zimbabwe that you would then, and then now you've gone on, you know, to create like waves all over the world, you know, the favorite guest of Oprah and PhD and book and your incredible foundation and everything. And the fact that you said that what was so crucial in that process was you and all women owning their sexuality and their sensuality. I was like, what? (laughs) So amazing because it's left out of the conversation so often. So then just to wrap up the story, basically then I ended up just getting up to talk with my mom real quick about, she wanted me to talk about something. I can't even remember what. It was Um, the, you did the circles. Yeah, I did the hip circles, but she had wanted me to talk about like mothers and daughters and and sexual shaming or whatever, that whole thing, which I chose to sort of talk about something else, but because I chose to talk about you and how, how, how blown away I was by your book. And, and then when you came to find me and say, hello, I just almost died. So, so I just want to say thank you for your work and thank you for being here. And um, no, thank you. Thank you. That moment when you were on stage with your mom and you talked about what I had talked about, that blew my mind because I never expected that. And so to get that honor and that recognition from you and your mom, I had met your mom during lunch and she said, my daughter won't quit talking about you. And then I met your husband and he said the same thing. And oh my goodness, but it just speaks to the power of believing in knowing our own bodies. I mean, it's like the work that you, like, I haven't heard you. I've watched some of your talks and over the past, since I, since I first met you in, in Phoenix for that, you know, five seconds, it was like what Kate just described is so right on point with the title of your entire book, mm. you know, and like the awakened woman is just like, because yes. it's, when Kate's describing it, and even when she came back from your talk, it was just mm. like this awakenness that took place. Yeah. And after all of the talks that I have seen of you, like Marie, for the, you were at Lewis House's event and I've been watching some stuff in preparation for today. 
it's just everyone is much more alive after listening yes yeah because awake an awakened oh. woman wakes up other women I mean, your work is just so amazing. So can you talk about a little bit about, just to start us off, thank you for indulging me with my story. <laughs> but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to lay the groundwork. I'm quite, you know, it's so funny how these things work. Like I saw, you know, your name and then I started following you. And then I felt so compelled to attend this event, which made no sense because we have two small children and we live in Maine and, you know, where I was about to launch my own book, but I just felt so compelled. And I feel quite sure that the reason I felt so compelled was that I needed to go to hear you speak. And and so anyway, so thank you. And I just want to know, like, could you share, obviously you have a whole chapter about it written in your book, but let's just start with what do you think is so critical? Why, you know, being raised in a village, being married at 14, having had five children by the age of 18? Four by the age of 18. Four by the age of 18, and then, but six total. Yeah. You had six total children. Quite young. Very young. Yeah. Very young. Like, so with that, and then the things that you've seen and the research that you've done, why are you talking about sexuality and sensuality and, and owning the erotic as so important when, you know, the rest of the world is focused on eradicating disease and, you know, and keeping women and their bodies safe and, you know, ending violence. And obviously those things are all important too, but <laughs> can you tell me more about that? Because there is a part of us that gets silenced when you marry young or when you are sexually abused and people don't want to talk about that. Our sensuality, our sexuality is silenced. So people, they run to, uh, let's provide healing in these areas, but there's that part that is silenced. And I've always recognized that because my grandmother, as you read in my book, she would talk about that part that when you recognize that silencing and you are awakened to your own sensuality because there's a connection between your body knowing and the achievement of your dreams. There's a connection between a woman who is in tune with her own sexuality. She's a woman who is able to be so creative because there's a trigger in our brain that allows you to achieve and work hard towards her dreams. So as a, as a sexually abused woman, if that part of me remains silenced, there's no way out I can sit at your table, at my table, and make decisions as a woman because my sensuality and the way I am proud of who I am in my own body is connected to the work that I do. Mm-hmm. So for women who have been sexually abused, have been exploited, you know, whether they were like you, married off young and essentially traded for a cow. I mean, is that, that's the story? So, so, so sometimes when women are sexually abused and silenced, sometimes they remain never to want sex because there's no one who is really counseling them to come home to themselves, to begin to love themselves, to begin to realize that they are not sexual objects. Because every time they want to have sex, something is triggered in them and they are afraid and they don't want, they see sex as dirty, as hateful and what have you. But these rituals, what I call daily rituals that these women need to go through, there's counseling that these women need to go through to really say this erotic power that I have, 
I have to awaken it to find my healing. Mm-hmm. And how have you talked to your own daughters about that? It's not easy <laughs> to talk to our kids about it. I know. <laughs> I write my book and I read. But seriously, my, uh, my grandmother, they would say it's dirt and taboo, but it's important to talk about it. And my grandmother would always talk about, we carry soul wounds. You know, when I talk about the passing on of the baton from my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother, and me, it's not only the ugly passing on of that baton, but there's also wisdom. So my grandmother always said there's wisdom that is passed on, the wisdom of body knowing of the erotic power. We all have that. We need to talk about that openly to our own children. Otherwise, if they are exchanged for for cows, that part of their sensuality, the erotic power, becomes silenced. So you need, and she would always say, you have this sacred responsibility to sit with your daughters and talk to them about it. And now that I am here in America, my kids are here in America, I am so free to say, you have choice who you want to have sex with. You have choice who you want to be, but it's important for you to own this erotic power, to own yourself, because that's part of our creativity as women. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so for women who you know, have come from a background of abuse or just have been raised in this culture, which is incredibly silencing, even if you haven't been abused per se, although I don't know any women who haven't been sexually assaulted, but like, where would you recommend that they start? What's the first thing they're listening and they're like, this sounds like a great idea and you are such a living example. You know, it's one, I just love your story because it's like, if you can do this, we can do this, you know? And so there's no excuse. There's no excuse of like all the reasons that you have that maybe you wouldn't prioritize this. So given that there's no excuse, what would be the first step to prioritizing, awakening your your sensuality and your sexuality, your erotic power? You know, you know, the wise women like your mother, for me, that would be the first step, finding women like your mother, finding resources, finding women who truly understand that deep connection between the silencing of our sensuality and how we can heal from it. I wish if resources were available in many continents, in many nations, to allow women to find these that I call wisdom whisperers. Because when I sit and listen to Dr. Northrop, I feel like I am in the presence of someone who deeply understands how my body functions, who deeply understand how my sensuality and how I can reclaim my erotic power because I don't talk about claiming because we already have it within us. And what your mother does is part of my healing, as part of women's healing, is to go back to be in tune with themselves and reclaim that part. And that's what your listeners can gain if they find these women, these healers who can help them to do that. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you are absolutely, obviously, one of those wisdom whisperers. And you talk in the book, each chapter ends with a ritual. So can yeah. you talk about how ritual has been part of your journey and why it was so critical? Can you share about the burying of your dream and just ritual in your culture and then also how it plays into your current daily life as well? You know, I, I always say I, uh, I breathe rituals. I am ritual. <laughs> I can't be who I am without rituals because rituals, those essence, daily things that we do to ground ourselves. When I buried my dreams, it's funny because I would find this space where my grandmother said, go where you had buried your dreams and sit. Make sure that your vagina is in touch with the ground. You feel the throbbing of the ground as its energy enters your, your body. And as you visualize those buried dreams, the life you want and what it could be. And going back to my bearing of my dreams, here I was, young, poor woman, married with four children at that time living in the rural areas and uh, he had no education, no high school education. And I met this woman from America. Her name is Jo Luck. Uh, that time I didn't know her name. And she asked me, what are your dreams? And I told her I wanted to go to America to have an undergraduate, a master's and a PhD. And she said, if you believe in your dreams, they are achievable. And at first I'm like, she must be crazy because I don't even have my GED. How can she think that I can achieve my, my PhD or let alone going to America? And I ended up running to my mother and I told her that I met a woman who made me believe in my dreams. And my grandmother that time was still, she was still alive. And they both said the same way we bury the umbilical cord, write down your dreams and bury. In my language, the word bury and plant are the same. Mm. Hmm. We We are only burying from termites when we plant sweet potatoes deep under the ground. We bury and plant at the same time. We are burying from the weather, from termites. We are burying from negative people, toxic environment. That's, we are burying our dreams but then we'll see them grow and grow and grow because there is the aspect of planting as well. So I, uh, I was ready to go and bury these four dreams when my mother said something so profound, your dreams will have greater meaning when they are tied to the betterment of your community. It's not only about your personal goals in life, neither is it about these personal degrees that you talk about, but it is about how your personal goals and these degrees are connected to the greater good. And that's the reason why I ended up writing my fifth dream, my number five dream. When I am done, I want to come back and improve the lives of women and girls. So when I buried those dreams, that's when my grandmother said, you sit in that place and visualize the life you want. 
And I would spend hours and hours in that same place. And I would sit there and make these mental images because my grandmother had said, you need to feel the dreams, each one of them. So I would give space to each one of my dreams. You feel, you smell that dream. You enter into that dream. You start living that dream. So I would go, I would do days on end doing that. My vagina is on the ground because there's a connection between that sensuality, that body knowing, that erotic power to this creation of my dreams. And I truly believe that. No mm. matter what someone tells me, I think a woman who is in tune with her sensuality, a woman who is in tune with her erotic power is a woman who is able to sit in a boardroom and make decisions that impact the world in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Can you talk about the baton and the baton that was passed down, you know, from past generations and then the batons that you chose to carry forward and the ones that you didn't? And also, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what that might have to do with epigenetics, Mm -hmm. um, I'd be very curious to hear a little bit more. Yeah. So I... um... You know, I I talk about, I come from a long line of generations of women, women who had been married very young before they could define their own dreams. And remember, there are about 700 million women in this world who either had babies before the age of 18, sexually harassed before the age of 18, married before the age of 18. So the generations before me are part of that number. So I always visualized my great-grandmother. When she was born, she was born into this race, a relay race that I call the race of poverty. And she was born holding a baton. And I think, and I want to say, is the baton of early marriage because she was married young before she could define her dreams, the baton of abuse. What do you expect when you get married when you are young before you can formulate your own ideas of who you want? You are more prone to abuse. The baton of a colonial system that oppressed her and never valued her because we were that time under the British colonial system. And the baton uh, of illiterate because she never went to school and she's running with this baton. She runs so fast with this baton. She hands it over to my grandmother. My grandmother grabs this baton of illiteracy, the baton of early marriage, the baton of silencing from an oppression that never valued her. She runs with this baton. She hands it over to my mother. My mother grabs the baton of illiteracy, the baton of early marriage, the baton of a colonial system that never respected her. She runs with that baton and she hands it over to me. And I never wanted to be part of that race. It was not my baton. I needed to redefine a different baton. 
my grandmother, when she talks about the handing over of this baton, of this ugly stick, she also says there is the ugliness that is handed down, but there is also wisdom. In our life, we have to decide, do I want to continue running with the ugly baton or I want to grab the wisdom and run with the, with the, with the wisdom? Epigenetics tells us so much about the trauma that we go through in our lives. The trauma that is shaped from past generations, they settle within our, they become part of our DNA. And we have to be very careful to really sit down and ask ourselves, do I want to be part of this soul wounding? Do I want to pass this soul wounding to the next generation? Because as part of epigenetics, despite the fact that there's trauma that is passed from one generation to the next, as my grandmother says, there's also wisdom that is passed down from one generation to the next. Though trauma becomes so heavy on us because it reminds something in ourselves that we have walked this journey, the journey becomes easier and more comfortable, even if it's ugly, we still want to walk that journey. And the awakening, when you become awakened, you realize that trauma, that part of epigenetics in your bones, and you refuse, you say no. I know my great-grandmother went through this. My grandmother went through this. My mother went through this. You begin to see this pattern, this generational pattern in your pathway, and you say, oh, hell no. I have to change that. But it takes our awakening to be able to reflect on our past and never to see our past as something to be forgotten because it's part of our genes, it's part of our DNA. But I always say, my DNA is not part of my destiny. That's the awakening. And for me, when I grabbed that baton, I knew I was not going to pass on this early marriage, this oppression to my girls. So I had to have that conversation. Today I have a grandchild, she's 19 years old and she's heading to university right now. She defied everything my grandmother was married before she was even 14. I was married 14 and she is the first one in my family. She's now 19 going to college. And I have another girl, my own girls, besides my grandkids. Uh, she graduated with mechanical engineering. She has her own a baby now and expecting another baby. And so I say, when I think about the passing on of the ugly baton, this baton, this ugly baton, I don't think my own kids, now they are scientists, artists, they are now running with a different baton. They are passing it on to their own kids. So I don't think they will ever pass on an ugly baton. That's how we reshape our soul wounds. That's how we, we reshape the baton. So we pass on a different, and it comes from understanding epigenetics and understanding that in the epigenetics, there is trauma, but there is also wisdom that is passed on. And you talked about your grandmother and how she was a, a midwife, a medicine woman in your village, and how she was part of this secret society of women 
Mm-hmm. Who, who, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I think it's, you know, interconnected to the conversation about epigenetics and wisdom, the fact that here you are, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Can you share that so, story? So, so my, because, because women are silenced and they can't talk about their sensuality, their sex, and the need for it openly in those days. And so my mother, my grandmother belonged to this, what she calls the secret society where women would come together and talk about their sensuality and asking how can we help our grandkids and our daughters so that they are in tune with their own sensuality. So they would meet all the time as women and invite other women and they would call it, it's a secret society. And one day I would tag along with my grandmother and I would listen and hear of them talking about orgasm. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And they would talk about, because sometimes women shy from talking about how our own bodies work and the erotic power that we have. But in that space, I would hear women giggle and talk about it. And I would go home and look at my grandmother. She's totally different. She's not even talking about it. And I would whisper to my mother. My mother says, shh, you don't talk about those things. And I would try to ask someone else, another woman who is not part of the society, and they would say, that's taboo, that's dirty. But my grandmother would always say that it's part of the wisdom that our ancestors always knew, and they want us to carry this wisdom in case one day women become awakened to their own sensuality. One day, women become empowered to tell the world that there's a connection between our erotic power and the things we want to achieve in the world. And that alone made me want to write this book, The Awakened Woman. Mm. Wow, thank you. What does the world look like if all the women are awakened women? Wow split open, the world would be split open because many women have untold stories. And when there is no greater pain, I think I write about it, than bearing an untold story. And so when women become awakened, that's the healing of the world. Can you imagine if every woman is in tune with their erotic power, is in tune with the connection between their sensuality and the achievement of their dreams. We could be having queens in this world. We could have healers in this world. And I think we could live in a world where there is no war, a world full of compassion and peace if women are awakened. A world that recognizes that we don't have to live in, in inequality if all women are awakened. Because I think women, we are the source of healing and we are the source of power. 
Thank you. I have tears in my eyes. On that thread, what dreams are you? So you've, you achieved the dream of going to the United States and getting your undergrad and your master's and your PhD. First of all, I have to ask you a question based, and then I'll come back to the one I was going to ask. When I was listening to your talk in Phoenix, I really wanted to know because so you, so you, you got your GED, you did distance courses through Oxford, right? Through uh, Cambridge. Cambridge, excuse me, through Cambridge. And then you got your GED and then you got into undergrad and in the United States. And then you went with all of your children. So how the between the how we, when you were studying at home through Cambridge and sending in and waiting months in between when your grades were coming or whatever they call them, how did it, can you tell the in-between story of getting your GED and then getting to the United States with all of your children? How did that happen and where in the timeline of your life was that occurring? So after I met uh, Jo Luck and uh, she inspired me to, to dream big and my mother inspired me to bury those dreams and I made those mental images of the life I wanted, but I could not begin to think of going to America because I didn't have my GED or my high school education. And I needed to write five subjects for me to qualify for a GED, math, English, science, whatever, five. And I, I was poor. I didn't have any money to write. And I couldn't even go to school because I was an, an adult. I couldn't fit in a classroom. So I needed to do correspondence. And for me to sign up for this correspondence, I needed about, I think, $20, $25 per subject, and I couldn't even get that. My mother was a subsistence farmer, and uh, she would sell tomatoes, mangoes, any produce, and she would give me $25 at a time or $20 at a time. Uh, she couldn't give me the whole amount, so I would write one or two uh, subjects the time and I would send these my paperwork, my exams to this place called Cambridge. And I would go to the rural office, post office, and mail them. And I would wait three, six months for the results to come back. And they would always come back in a brown envelope. And I would open that brown envelope and I realize I have a U and an F on both subjects. U, which means ungraded and F like failure. Um, and I'll go back to my mother and ask and tell her I have failed and ask for more money. My mother would say, okay, I can sell these guavas. I have onions in the garden. I can sell that and she'll sell and give me more money and I'll enroll again for two subjects and wait another three, six months for that brown envelope to come back from Cambridge. And I would open that brown envelope. And I had a U ungraded. I would go back again to my mother. And my mother would say, okay, we can sell ground nuts. I should give me money and I would enroll again and I would wait. And I have a U and I have an F and I have a D. And now I'm seeing a D. And I'll go back to my mother, I failed, I need an A and a B for me to qualify to graduate 
for my high school and she would do it and it took me eight years. Those were the most painful eight years of my life. They reminded me of a locked door that I needed to unlock. And my mother would always encourage me that you have the key in your hands and I'll do whatever I can to help you unlock that door so you pass your high school education. After eight years, I finally opened that brown envelope. I had A's and B's. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew I was on a journey to eliminate, to break this cycle of poverty, this vicious cycle of poverty, to eliminate this baton or to redefine this baton so I don't pass it on to my girls. Yeah. And I always say when I tell my story, I'm not telling because I want anyone to feel sad for me or to think poor Terry she must have been a victim. No, I am not a victim. I am part of the solution. And I have decided in my life, this is how I define who I am. I am a dreamer and I am the master and mistress of my own destiny. I refuse to let the past define who I am. I refuse to let the current challenges in my pathway become the narrative that others use. I defied the norms of my culture. I defied the rules of my father. And I refuse to keep silent about societal expectations that marginalize women and girls to be submissive at the expense of their dignity. And I'll never be silent. But the question that comes to my mind is, why did I defy everything that shaped generations of women before me? Why did I defy everything that shaped my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother? I think it is because I had hunger in my life. And I always talk about two kinds of hungers in our lives. There is the little hunger. The little hunger is all about immediate gratification. I want it now. It's impatient. That's the little hunger. It keeps on demanding more of us. It keeps on asking us to work harder. Sometimes at the expense of our own grounding, it demands, it demands, and we can never satisfy the little hunger. But the great hunger, the greatest of all hungers is hunger for meaning in our lives. Ultimately, as human beings, we become bitter, and especially women, when we lead a life without meaning. And so I had that hunger to find meaning, marrying that hunger with the wisdom that had been passed from generations before me, using that hunger to fuel everything that I needed in my life. And I think that's what I encourage your listeners to tap into that great hunger within them and to ask themselves, what breaks my heart? What breaks my heart? That's how you find your great hunger. 
because it is in those moments of our brokenness, in those moments when we begin to tap into that great hunger, we begin to hear, to feel that stirring within us, the stirring that is leading us to something greater than who we are, something that says we are here on earth for a purpose. We are not just scattered here on earth. We can achieve our own dreams. And it comes from finding that great hunger within you. Mm. Thank you. When you, after those eight years, which you described, then can you tell us the next part of the story? When then how was it that you Went to undergrad. Got to undergrad and and took your kids and came to the United States. Well, that's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) I write that that in my awakened woman. It wasn't easy because, you know, Zimbabwe, it's a patriarchal society. And my husband didn't want me to come to America. But I, gosh, there was no turning back for me. He was not going to stop me. So I applied for my passport and applied for my visa. But I knew I didn't want to leave my kids behind. It was so important for me to bring my kids, and especially the girls, because I knew if I leave them behind, they will get married young. They will just follow the same pathway that generations of women before them that their mother had followed. And that was a little bit tricky because to get a passport and a visa, you need your husband to sign for the passport because ultimately they are the father of the children. I approached my husband. He said, Nap, if you want to go, you go. You are leaving my kids behind. They were so young. The last one was hardly six months old. She was a girl. And the older girl at that time, she was nine years old. And I knew it was a question of three, four years. She would be married. I couldn't live with it. I begged my husband. He said, no, you're not doing it. I'm not doing it. I went to my mother and I said, I don't know what to do. This whole dream thing It's not about me. It's really about breaking this cycle. It's really about defying the epigenetics, the genes that I carry. And I I want to make sure that I'm not passing on this baton. And my mother said, Terry, there must be someone in his family who will listen to you. And I said, no, there's no one. said, no. There's always wisdom careers within our communities. There's someone. Go find that someone. Gosh, and I'm thinking, and I couldn't. At that moment, I was thinking of women. And something tells me, no, this is women are silenced in his community, in my community. What makes me think that a woman is going to help? So I went to his uncle. His uncle is... He's a polygamist. I could see three wives. He was married to three wives and I arrived and I asked if he can help me to get the kids have 
passports if my husband can sign? And he said, no. You want to influence my women here so they could be just like you? You think you are very smart? No. Get the hell out of my place. And I cried. And I said, please, I need help. And I told him about what my mother had said, that there must be someone in the community, a wisdom whisperer. And I'm thinking, you must be the one. And he's looking at his wife, and he says, you want to influence my wife? I don't want to hear you. And I cried. And I said, okay, I'm going. And as I was leaving the place, and I'm walking away from the yard, and he accompanies me. And we are walking, and we are no longer talking about that. And so he said, oh, well, here is the bus stop. You can go. And as I was about to walk to the bus stop, and he said, wait a minute. Have you thought every person in this world, they want to go to America? I know no one in this village who doesn't want to go to America. I don't know anyone who doesn't. And I'm thinking, what is he trying to talk about? I had no idea what he's talking about. And I said, "Mm mm-hmm. He said, have you thought of inviting your husband to America with you? And I said, no, I'm trying to run away from this abuse. And he said, you must be a fool. You take him with you, you will say yes. That's the part that I can play to say, go with your wife and you can change your life. Here's what I know about America. I've never been there, but they don't have the police force like we do that you can go and report abuse And the same police officer is also abusing his wife. And they say, we don't deal with domestic affairs in America. They will deport you. Remember, some people, they don't, they continue with their habits. Oh, my gosh. And I am thinking, this man is a genius. (laughs) So (laughs) he convinced my husband and I went back and said, oh, yeah. I'm going to America. Uh, The only way I can sign those passports is for me to go with my children. He had been told he can go and work in America and uh, if, you know, and he can be his own person in America. And he signed those papers. And I said, well, can I go with the kids and you can follow later? Because my brain is trying to think that maybe he won't come. And he said, no, you go alone. I'll bring the kids. I said, okay. And uh, I had to make sure that the kids were going to come within six months. So I came to America and I started making arrangements for him and the kids to come. And that's how I managed to bring my children. But as they say back home, they use, they say, shiri gets meaning a, bear, a bird, a, fly, a flying bird. It is this distinct cry, and it will never stop crying that way. Meaning, it is this bird has its own habits, and it will never stop those habits. So, my husband, when he came to America, he started being abusive. And it was worse than home because I think now he could see me 
carrying my backpack, going to school, coming back, and I'm doing my assignments, and I go to work, and he would remain home taking care of the kids, and he didn't see that role at all. One of the kids was still in diapers, and uh, he had never dealt with diapers in his life. And to find himself now with diapers, that was unheard of. So he would beat me up until... At first, I was quiet. I didn't want to talk about it, and I would give all kinds of excuses. I would go with a, a blue eye or a black eye, whatever, and I would say, I fell, I did that, to avoid talking about it, because I realized in America, if I report him, if he gets deported, how am I going to deal with all these five kids? So that became my silencing. But one day, he beat me in a way that I said, no. I am allowing my own daughters to see that. They will normalize that. And when they get married, they will think that's okay. That's another passing on of the baton. So the police came. My neighbor reported and my girl ran to a neighbor reported. And I said, run, run. And, and the police came, they found me all bloody. And so he was asked, you go to jail. And he said, no, I want to go back to my country. And they said, well, we process your papers and you do what we call voluntary deportation. You go home. And he said, I, and he said, I want to take my babies with me. And the police said, no. With this abusive uh, uh, behavior, you can't take your children. So he ended up getting deported. And I remained with my kids. And I thought about that old man in the village, what he had said and thought about my mother. Truly my mother was a wisdom whisperer. She guided me. She became my compass in this life. Yeah. Hmm. And for the rest of the story, you're going to have to read The Awakened Woman. <laughs> I mean, you are an extraordinary storyteller. Wow, yes. So how do men because you've experienced a tremendous amount of oppression due to men, as well as many women in the, that live in America right now and around the world. Like how do men support the awakened woman? Yeah, let's start there. Yeah, let me say that not all men are oppressive. Mm -hmm. Not all men. I stand on the shoulders of men myself. I had the vice president of uh, student affairs at Oklahoma State University, Dr. Ron Beer, who helped me get food when I was stranded, who helped me get this guy deported because he knew what he was doing. So I have many men that have helped me. But here's the thing. We cannot win this battle of gender equality without men the empowerment of women can fully be recognized when we have men as part of the discussion. It's important because men have the power to challenge the status quo. I always give an example of how we Zimbabweans won our independence. We were the last country in the continent to gain our independence. It took a few white people to say, we have enjoyed 
this white privilege. It's enough. We need to fight for the rights of the black people. The same with men. The men can say we have enjoyed this platform that gives us more privilege at the expense of women's awakening. I as a man, we as men, we are going out of our way to make sure that we stand with women so that we equalize the playing field. And it takes men who are comfortable in their own skin to give women that kind of platform. Mm. And I encourage men to read my book so they can also get their own awakening. Because sometimes when men do these things is because masculinity has been normalized and we see it as the norm. And it's because of ignorance. But once men are awakened, and I have a book for the awakening of men as well in the pipeline, once men have been awakened, they become our best friends. They begin to understand our erotic power, our sensuality. They begin to understand our dreams. And we can all live in harmony as men and women. Now, at this point in your life, as you grow your foundation, as you work towards the education of more and more women and girls, mm. what, what dreams have you planted now? I mean, I'm sure you've talked about many of them during our conversation already, but is, are there any other dreams? Like, are you spending that same time? I mean, now you're spending time traveling the world speaking, but, but what are those visions that you have and what dreams have you planted that you are sitting with now? Let me, let me say that I have decided to plant my dreams in your heart. I have decided to plant my dreams in your listeners' hearts. I'm tired of digging the ground and burying my dreams. The awakening of women is how I am planting my dreams to make sure that all women are more awakened that's the first one. The second dream that I have is to continue to sustain the education. Right now we have 11 schools benefiting 38,000 kids with 19,000 girls sitting in larger numbers in classrooms. I have decided that I'm tired of grant writing. I'm going to do everything that I can to fund my foundation. I write books and I sell books, but I also want to be a business woman. And I think Africa, we are done with aid. We have become crippled by receiving funding at the expense of our sustainability. If we can have business models that can help us to fund public programs, that's what I'm working on right now partnering with investors and business communities so that at least we become business entities ourselves so we can fund our education. And it's part of my awakening to realize that donations have truly in many ways crippled Africa. That's very powerful. 
there's the sensual awakening and then there's also the financial awakening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they're very interconnected. Oh, very, very much so. Because I can't talk about this awakening and turn around and ask for $50,000 from a donor. And every year I have to be asking and thank you every year, thank you. The awakening is what the awakening at the internal level, but also financially, we have to be more awakened mm-hmm. if we want to achieve our dreams. So for those who you have obviously planted your dreams in their heart listening, what is the best way to connect with you? So I am promoting what I call the sixth dream, the sacred dream. It's the sixth dream. You can buy 10 copies of my book as an individual, one for yourself, nine for other women and men in your life. If you don't have those, leave a copy on the train, bus stop, go to the shelter, leave a copy, leave a copy at your local library where your kids go to school. You can leave nine copies. That's the journey of our awakening to make sure that your friends, these places where you have left copies, they are also getting, tapping into that great hunger, understanding their own awakening as well. Mm. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. And your website for people to come find your work and sign up for your list. Yeah. So they can also... If they want some of my teachings, they can go to Tererai Trend Course or they can, tap, they can, on their cell phone, they can text Awaken, A-W-A-K-E-N, Awaken, and they are prompted to write to then input 444999. Okay, great. So text 444999, text the word AWAKEN. Yes, yes. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay, great. And Dr. Tara Wright, I just, I love you so much. Your work is so incredible. Thank you for spending your time with us today. It's yeah, an incredible you. honor. Oh, thank you very much. The honor is mine. I, I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings. Everybody go get 10 copies of The Awakened Woman. One for you, nine for everyone else. And congratulations for your book. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. (laughs) I am so excited to tell you that my new book, Do Less, A Revolutionary Approach to Time and Energy Management, is now out. You can get the book along with a workshop on how to set boundaries and say no, and a workshop on how to apply the 80-20 rule to your life so you can get 80% more results with only 20% of the work, plus two Maven Masterclasses over at katenorthrop.com forward slash book. And the book is available anywhere books are sold. Get your copy of Do Less.